Yo, I'm Omid Farhang, CCO at Momentum. Today, my guest, Mike Byrne, founding partner and global CCO of Anomaly, whose clients include Nike, Coca-Cola, Beats by Dre, and Anheuser-Busch. Under Mike's leadership, Anomaly has become a creative powerhouse, winning every major award, including Ad Age Agency of the Year and Fast Company's Most Innovative. They were also featured as part of Time Magazine's 2016 Best Inventions. They created the Toy of the Year, and they've won two Emmys for a television series. Prior to Anomaly, Mike built his career at Wyden Kennedy, where he served as the co-creative chief on Nike. During his tenure, Wyden Kennedy amassed more awards than any other agency in America. Mike has made some of the most famous work in the history of Nike advertising, including Lance Armstrong's yellow band campaign that helped raise over $50 million for the Livestrong charity. He also won an Emmy in 2004 for the classic film, Nike Tag. He's an industry legend, and yet talking to him, I got the distinct feeling his best work is still ahead of him. This is Mike Byrne and I talking to ourselves. I think when you first get into the industry, you um, you don't have anything to lose, and you're usually single, and you have no kids, and you have no mortgage, and it feels like you sort of fell into this great profession, and yeah. eventually they're going to escort you out of the building, and you're going to say, like, thanks for letting me stick around as long as you did. Yeah. I'll go be a lawyer now or yeah. something. And then you end up having kids and having a mortgage and having responsibilities, and there's a lot at stake. But you know that you have to figure out how to sort of bottle that feeling yeah. of having nothing to lose. You have to manufacture it. Um, yeah. Do you feel that? I I mean, I, you know, I, I always I, – I grew up with um, World War II parents in that – or Great Depression parents in that my grandparents uh, <clears throat> were like, you can lose anything at any minute. So my parents were like, you can lose anything at any minute. And they passed that fear down to me that you can lose anything at any minute. So I still have nightmares. I'm going to wait tables. I still, uh, I, I worry about this industry like being over quickly, yeah. which I really believe it's going to be. I mean, it's, I think I, I'm, I'm, people are like, dude, you sound, par-. I'm like, no, I'm like, I am a plan for the worst, hope for the best. And as long as I, you know, and you got to, you got to keep that thing behind you that's chasing you. And I think that's what kind of keeps me going. Do you feel like every day someone's going to come and take it all away? Uh, it's not that. It's not that extreme, but it's not far from it, to be honest. It's not far from it. I mean, I feel super fortunate. I work my ass off, but, you know, it's more, you know, it's also, you know, the waking up like, am I am I just a fucking hack? Am I, maybe I'm just a hack. Maybe that. Maybe I'm just getting away with it. A lot of people get away with it. Maybe I'm one of those guys. <laughs> it's very discouraging for me to hear you say that because you're responsible for some of my favorite advertising of the past 25 years. So at what point, what is it that you have to make to stop feeling that feeling? I guess there is nothing. Um, I mean, I think one of the interesting things that we're doing now is we're, get, we're doing stuff outside of advertising, like just brands and starting our own brands, which agencies have been doing or say, say they've been doing for a while, but we're actually doing it. And that gives me some security to have like something that... Because, you know, we spend most of our careers giving these inanimate objects personalities. You know, like, I got to give this inanimate object coffee or sunglasses or my phone or whatever, or my shirt. And um, we do that for other people. And then it gets really interesting. We're like, all right, let's create it from, let's let's create this from inception. Like a thing from the beginning. Yeah. And that that's, and then, you know, then if you have a product in the, in the marketplace and you're behind it and you're controlling it and you understand you know, you distribute all that stuff and then, and then there's, you're making money off of that. There, there's a real security in that. Yeah. But I, still not enough. I have, I have a bunch of questions about anomaly and, and owning, 
uh, properties and the ways that you guys sort of figure out how to allocate resources to the traditional client model, um, yeah. but also figure out how to sort of, you know, you guys are named Anomaly for a reason and you guys are doing things quite a bit differently than a lot of other agencies out there. I actually kind of, I feel like there's a lot of agencies that go on big corporate retreats and talk about like new revenue streams and then drink too much and come back and no one ever follows through. You just through. get right back into the same thing. Yeah, and you guys actually come back and do the stuff that you talked about at the retreat. Yeah, I mean, we try to. It's not always easy. Yeah. We, we just had a, re, we just had a, a our um, leadership meeting in London uh, six weeks ago? Six weeks ago. And it was, it's like all the offices come in and then everyone talks about like, this is where we sucked this year. This, this is where we did some really interesting things. Here's some advice of something that we learned. So everyone's stealing from each other and it's really open. And I've never been part of a, a global group of people who everyone wants to help everybody out. It's actually, it, it was actually emotionally moving. Like, er, like the, when we all left on the Thursday night, we had dinner and we all got together and had some drinks afterwards. And it got emotional. People were like, dude, I'm going to, you know, the guys in Shanghai, I'm like, oh, yeah, that was really cool. Guys in Britain, like, that was, like, that was, that was really like, I liked that. Because it was like, it wasn't about, it wasn't competitive. It was like, hey, this is where we fucked up. Uh, this is where we succeeded. Hey, here's a way to present. That's really interesting. Right. How do you present over the phone? One guy just t- talked about how you present staring into a phone and gave some tips that I thought were like really interesting. But we had a session where we go, if Anomaly started tomorrow, um, tomorrow, what would our point of view be? What would our offering be in, in the industry as we know it right now? And we all went off into little groups and talked about it. And I and weirdly, we all came back with kind of the same answer. And it was, in fact, Ali, who's our ECD in London, said that was probably one of the best meetings I've ever been part of because it was I'm not going to get into what we talked about. Yeah. But it I was sh- shocked that a we all came back with the same sort of um hypothesis and it's completely different than what we're doing right now. Well, that was my question. I mean, when you're the founding partner of an agency, the that comes with a lot of challenges, but one of the joys of it is that you're part of a small handful of people who you've had the discussions with and you guys all share a vision and you guys are all basically wanting the same thing and moving in the same direction is the meeting that you just had. It, it felt like yeah, all of a sudden, you know, you guys have grown quite a bit since those, those founding days. What was that? 16 years ago, 14, 14 we just, we just years had ago, our 14th anniversary. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm sure a lot of the principles from 14 years ago remain intact, but are you, you're surprised by the way that the vision has adapted over, over time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, like one of the things we said, I, I, I said it, I said it to the, or I said it at, at our, so every night we have dinner and it's fun and you, you, you get to hang with people. You, sure. And I was sitting next to Camilla, who's, who's the president of our, our um, London office. And I said, if I'm a 30 year old CMO, I'm not hiring a fucking ad agency, not in a million years. Right. No way. No way. I grew up in the, why would I hire this big lumpy 17 account people, 13 bullshit. Well, I don't know what they do. They show up at meetings. They're on their phones. Fuck them. Right. I'm going to pick my, I'm going to hand pick the people that are going to help me build my brand. And she's like, that'll never happen. You know, she didn't say that. It, what it did is it just, it caused a really good conversation about like, are we, are we resting on our laurels a little bit? Like, are we aware of what's going on? Are we, you know, marketers have enough time with dealing with agencies and dealing with their own careers. Because then, you know that you know you know the marketing window CMOs is like yeah and then where do and then loyalty where does loyalty go 
new CMO comes in. He's like, I don't give a shit who you guys are right. or the work you did. I'm going to bring my boys in from over here. So we're, yeah, we, I just, I just think we're constantly having those. Kind, I don't think many agencies have those like Carl and Carl Johnson, Jason Delenn and I will often get together on a random Tuesday. Somebody will send out an email out at one in the morning about something they read. And we're like, let's talk about this. What can we do? Is there any, you know, where, where, what are we doing wrong? And, or we'll learn from a project or a piece of business that we currently have about like, oh, we don't know that. Because, you know, a lot of agencies fake it. Like, oh, yeah, we, like, we started this thing called Apollo because we didn't know shit about data. Yeah. I mean, we went in there and we talk about millennials. We talk about media, but we didn't really know it. So we're like, we don't know it. We're bullshitting. So now we got to, and that was three years ago now. So, I don't know. It's it's just like you're. I often we often use sports analogies at Anomaly because most of us. I'm a big believer in like a lot of good uh, agency people are ex athletes because you know the humility of sports. Like it's really hard to have an ego unless you're Tom Brady and if you even won five Super yeah. Bowls. But most of the time, most athletes just fail consistently, and um, but they rely on the people around them, and we're constantly going like, if we're a team, how do we beat the Yankees? Because we're not going to beat them right now with our pitching staff. And we're not going to beat them with uh, our on-base percentage. So what do we do? And they're doing data analytics. We're not. Or if you, you know, you know that book Moneyball. Yeah. Like that, that, that was like the first time I go like, how do you apply that to everything else? Because there's got to be, everything's math anyway. You know, there's got to be some yeah. secrets in there. The amazing part of hearing you say that is one could argue that you guys aren't the A's playing Moneyball. You guys are the Yankees now. Uh, and with that comes different types of challenges and you're a victim of your own success. And you just brought it up a little bit of like what happens after you achieve everything that you sought to achieve 14 years ago when you started, what happens after you've been agency of the year, after you've won an Emmy, after you've been on time magazine lists, how do you keep your ego in check? How do you stay hungry? It sounds to me like you're sort of, it's important that you guys bottle that feeling of being an underdog. Uh, even if it sometimes it's not always true. And I don't believe a lot of that stuff. I, th I think, you know, the the agency lists, the top 50 creative people, I don't know who makes those lists. I don't know. I mean, it was great that we won Agency of the Year, um, but I'm sure someone else could have won. I mean, I, I, you can believe that stuff or you know inside you, yourself, whether you are doing, you're living to your maximum potential. And I, th I, th I also think those things come out and they're great and they're good for recruiting and they're good for clients like, oh, that's great. But I think you only you know whether you're knowing it or not. As you think about the building of a company and a department through the context of sports, do you think about it like a professional sports franchise? Do you look at yourself like a head coach or a general manager? Probably more like a GM, maybe a mix of the two. And I think <clears throat> I think one of the, le the lessons that I've learned too is um, I have to be careful of the expectations I put on people, because if you if you not everyone's going to live up to your expectations and you have to learn how to deal with that, you know, especially in the workplace. Cause I don't know what happens at, at home for people. Like in college, I knew everybody, I knew where they slept. Right. I ate meals with them and here it's different and I can't put the same sort of expectations on them. So that, that, that part's been different, but I still think of it that way. And I try to be, um, you know, accommodating to, the world that people live in and not just the world of anomaly because right. we're just one part of their day you know yeah you're from philly and you're a you're a um hardcore eagles fan so you would say your coaching style is maybe a little bit more dick for meal than buddy ryan 
Yeah, but I wish I was more Buddy Ryan. <laughs> right. Do you do you worry more about being hard on people or being? Easy I'm not. On people? I'm not. I'm not hard enough on people. I. I've, it's never been. <laughs> it's never felt right to me. I can't. I have a real hard time being. I, the only time I get upset is when people dial it in. You know, right. they mail it in rather. Um, and even then, um, I'm, I find a way to like. I don't know. I just I, that's the part. I think that's one of my biggest flaws is that I'm not. I'm, I should be more, but it's good. I like that. I should be more Buddy Ryan. So we go back. You really built your career at Wyden Kennedy. Um, when you showed up at Wyden Kennedy in the mid '90s, they had enjoyed quite a bit of success before you got there. Do you remember a sense of of uh, of pressure walking through those hollowed halls and sort of feeling like you had to live oh, up yeah. to a legacy? Oh yeah, for sure. How did you How did you handle that? Did you try to sort of compartmentalize it, not think about it too much, or or think about it quite a bit? Um. I, th- I definitely thought about it, um, and I every opportunity, every brief that you got was a monumental thing. Unlike today, I think people get briefs and they're like, "Yeah, I just got to do this." Didn't matter what the brief was; right. could have been like, "Hey, you got to write, you know, um, radio for uh, Foot Locker." We're like, "All right, I'm gonna stay up two nights in a row and write right. 500 scripts." And, you know, whittle it down, not that many, but, you know, you, you, I definitely felt like I would go to work, go to the gym, go get like frozen pizza and like a sun kissed and then go back to my apartment and then write till like three in the morning and then get up and do that again. And literally my diet was horrible. I didn't, I didn't even, like, why go to the gym if you're going to poison yourself? Exactly. (laughs) Back then there's no like green juice places and poke, you know, like all the health options. It was just like, there was a deli at the end of my block, you know, and I went down there. No, but I I ate more better than that. But yeah. And then, you know, it it was also a time where like people would steal briefs off the printer that they weren't even working on and look at the brief and then write for it and then slide scripts underneath the creative director's desk or uh, door. I mean, there was a little bit of, the, the only thing I didn't like about it was you go out to like Beaverton where Nike is obviously and you come back and people go, how was the meeting? And you go, it was great, man. We crushed it. And you could just tell that they were bummed. Right. Like people secretly wished for other people to fail. And I don't live in that environment anymore. But that's also what made it kind of great. You know, that competitive thing. Yeah. But I always got a little sense of like no one really wanted you to do well. It felt like the people sitting in the office next to you were your competition in life. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. Big time. And then you you know you 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 found your tribe you know you found the people. My tribe happened to be the guy that was running the building, a guy named Matt Bucard. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just I I kind of picked up this random group of people there that I sort of became my my crew. Was there a sort of first big break for you at Wyden? Not really. I mean, I I feel like I I got opportunities as soon as I got there. I got lucky that way. I came in and there were some good briefs on the table, and I got right into the Nike group. So that was good. And I love sports. So it was like, what better way to spend my day yeah. and night? You worked with a lot of athletes during your time uh, at Wyden. When you're on set with an athlete, did Mike the fan ever accidentally sort of undermine Mike the creative director no. or Mike the writer? Uh-uh. I've never asked for an autograph. I, sh- I shot the shit with Warren Sapp because he won at Wendy's. And uh, I'm like, I'll, I'm like, can I get in on that order? And he's like, yeah, man. And I could, t- I could tell it was sort of open and he had like three, like double doubles or whatever. They're big, like, th- and just ate them. Like they were, you know, like just popping them like Mentos. And we, and then when we got to talk a little bit 
I got to talk a little bit with him, and that was the only time. The other other time, I'm super respectful. I know that they're doing it. They're going out of their way to do it. I don't want to be in their way. And I kind of think they probably look at me as like this ad dude who doesn't know shit. So I just kind of, you know. And then I'm just there if they have, you know. I did a thing with Tom Brady for Beats, oddly enough, about a year and a half ago. And I got to go on his trailer and take him through the thing. And, you know, I, I kind of wanted to say something, but I didn't. Yeah. As, you know, as I get older, I'm like, yeah, fuck it, just say something. But he was cool, super respectful, wanted to. You know, the, the thing with these guys is they want to do well on camera. Like yeah. they, they really want to like nail it. Kobe was actually really talkative. That was like one of my last jobs before I left. Me and this guy, Brian Ford, did this shot Kobe on Super 8 working out in a gym. And he was he hung out and talked to us. And, and it's funny because the guy that I did it with, this guy named Brian Ford, he ended up starting Zambezi with Kobe. Right. And they, that relationship started on that shoot. You said it. Um, they want to do well on camera. And they're down to they're down to connect with you and if they view you as sort of additive to them succeeding on camera they'll open up to you and it's the second you do the thing that you know you sort of felt the urge to do with Tom Brady like hey man I just wanted to uh, say that uh, you know you've been a great inspiration to me in my life like the second you do that and take them out of the one-on-one connection you can't get it back yeah and it, it's so funny it's like you feel the need to do this but it's going to be the thing that's going to completely undermine your ability to have any any further conversation with this person because you get you because you yeah it's like this you don't when are you going to get that opportunity again that's what you're thinking a little bit right you know right. yeah ideally by the end they're like can i take a picture with you but that just doesn't really happen yeah, yeah. uh you were one of the last to creative direct uh, Spike Lee in the in the role of Mars Blackman, mm. Spike and Mike. I think the final Spike and Mike commercial. What's it like being on set with Spike Lee with the hat flipped up for one last uh, Mars Blackman? I mean, I was all along for the ride on that. I mean, that was obviously Jim Riswold's baby, um, who uh, who's a huge been a huge mentor of mine. In fact, I was just out in Portland for his art art show. He's moved into art, but uh, that was cool. I mean, that was like being part of a. We shot on Brooklyn Bridge shot around New York. It was like being in a advertising museum the whole time. Yeah. Spike was cool. Mars was a little older than I remembered him. Right. <laughs> but as soon as he puts those glasses on and flits a hat up, yeah, he, it's like, it's Mars. <laughs> so you spent around a decade at Wyden Kennedy, right? Uh, no, eight, uh, just under eight years. Eight years. How were you different when you left than when you arrived? Same. I, you were the same? Same guy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, obviously, I know a little bit more, but same DNA, same wiring, same, you know, ner- same uh, paranoia activity. Yeah. <laughs> when you left Wyden, uh, Dan Wyden said about you, quote, we watched him develop into a one of a kind talent. We will miss him badly, unquote. A lot of great people have come and gone for Wyden Kennedy. Dan doesn't always come out in the press and say such a nice thing. Can you just tell us? I didn't us, even know he said that. What was that in? That was, uh, I think, maybe in your, like, an ad age piece when oh. you announced that you were going to Anomaly. And, man, you didn't, you missed that quote? I don't remember that happening, no. You don't, I, I see you weep, I see you getting a little misty right now. No, I mean, it's cool. I mean, Dan is, he, you know, as <clears throat> me and hundreds of other people will say, what created a culture and an environment that was, you know, unlike anything I've ever seen. Yeah. And uh, he will. Oh, I will always be indebted to him, big time. I'm sure there were things that you learned from him uh, that you took with you into the new role at Anomaly. Was there anything that you felt like it's sort of proprietary to widen and it can't be exported to any other agency? Uh, not really. I mean, 
I mean, just him as a person and getting one-on-one time with him in his office is probably the stuff that I will cherish the most. I mean, I didn't, I didn't work with him a lot as a, you know, like occasion on a new business pitch, he'd come into a meeting, but I didn't really work with him that much. My, my relationship with him was mostly the culture that he created. So a passive relationship and then the active relationship of spending time with him. And I went out of my way to like, try to get, get lunch with him, try to get, you know, call up Mary. Can I, is Dan around? Can I get 20 minutes in his office? I'd come up and talk about something that was bothering me or how do I do this? Or can I get your input on this? And it just, you know, it was just, he just has a way about him. He's like, it's hard to describe. He's just a very super bright guy. Great businessman. Yeah. I mean, that's the one thing people forget. I mean, that guy is a businessman yeah. and I like that about him. I thought that was cool. He's not just like this irresponsible creative. He knows how to run a business. Yeah. And I think that um, I always love that because I didn't wake up one day and go, oh, I want to be an advertiser. I'm like, I like solving problems. I don't know where that's going to take me. Oh, it took me over here. Cool. It's still business. We're still selling. We're still moving product. And I thought that he, as much as creativity is, you know, the work comes first. I think he really also understood the, the business of that, which I always appreciated. It take, I think a lot of creatives um, assume that the person in that perch is too busy for them. And you were saying sort of the importance of reaching out to him, connecting with him, grabbing 10 minutes. Um, you know, that takes a sense of ambition and a sense of courage to do that. And you kind of think everyone's doing it. But the truth is, you know, there's a lot of people who are too scared to reach out and, and get that time. They're not sure what they're going to say. Are you surprised now that you're the CCO at a company? Do you find that do you find that people are reaching out to you uh a lot or, or are you surprised that maybe people, people aren't doing that as much as you would expect? Probably the latter, but I, you know, I'm also not there a lot. I don't, you know, I sit out in the, I sit out with every, like we don't, we're, we're very much a meritocracy. Like no right. one has an office. We all sit together. Like I'm very, you, know, you can come up. Right. But I think people, you know, but I'm, again, I'm not there that much, but um, I'm a little surprised, like, and I, and I'm always like, I mean, even till this day, like I'll go to people at Anomaly who I think are special and just try to get a little of that residue rubbing off on me. Like, I don't, you know, what, what's that great satchel page quote? If you didn't know how old you are, how old would you be? Like, I don't, if, in, until I look at myself in the mirror, I still, I'm still a very young spirited person. Right. So I'm still looking for, I love that you brought that up. Like I, I did it in college, I did it in high school. I always look for mentors. I always look for people I can learn from. More so than a picking up a book, just because I'm not a great reader. I wish I was, because there's so, you know, there's so much out there to, but I'd rather just sit down with a person and get, you know, like I keep thinking I should call up some of these, you know, these ad, and, I've, and I haven't done it, maybe I will now, some of these ad legends, like George Lois, who I believe is still living in New York. Yeah. Like, get 20 minutes with him. Like, I don't know why I haven't done that. I mean, I could probably, you know, learn a shitload from him. Yeah. Or Hagerty in London, if you'd give me 20 minutes. Yeah. Maybe, maybe, because this is a perfect, what, maybe this is what, what you're do you doing. Think, what, the, what the fuck do you think we're doing right now, man? <laughs> How long have you been doing this, by the way? Uh, since January. Fucking smart. Yeah. But it was funny what you said about reaching out to people who you feel are special. Um, because what I always tell young creatives is like, you know, you may not have experience, you may not have ever been on a set or made a damn thing in your life, but what you have as an advantage that Mike Byrne doesn't have and I don't have is every meeting starts with like insights about the caged mystical beast known as the millennial. You're the millennial. So for whatever you lack in experience, if you think an idea is cool and if you experienced it in the wild and it would resonate with you, then like we're probably on to something. Yeah. Um, so that's a huge advantage and, and like being around people like that help 
keep you young and helps keep you sort yeah. of, you know, um, current. Do you, do you like, do you outwardly try to sort of develop relationships with new and young creatives just selfishly to, to keep you current? Yeah. I mean, I remember when I was in, um, I was my senior year in college, I went to one of my favorite professors, this guy named professor Donahue. I got some, again, mentor. And I said, I don't know what I want to do. I have no clue. He's like, the good news is you don't have to know what you want to do. He's like, but can I just say one thing? I'm like, what? He's like, I'm a college professor. And uh, I went to Georgetown just to give you context. He's like, I live in Georgetown. My kids use the gym and I'm surrounded by young people 365 days a year. He's like, it's the best thing in the world. I get to learn from them and I get to teach. And I just remember going like, hmm, that's, that's, you gotta, it could even just be like, oh, I need to live in a place or like near NYU, or if I'm living in Ann Arbor, or like a college, I just need to be around that. Yeah, always, because I do. I do think it helps. I didn't know at the the time that it would lead me to being in a very young industry, but I really enjoy it. I do, I, and I do re- reach out to those people. Yeah, it sounds like you discovered this industry pretty pretty late. I did. Yeah. Who uh, who first made you aware that this was this might be a thing you? I literally doing? didn't know you could. There was even. I just, I don't know what I was thinking. I was like, uh, I think I wanted to go, like I was obsessed with like stocks and I was like, wanted to be a stockbroker just because I loved going like, ooh, it's, you know, there's a, there's a hurricane in Puerto Rico. What's that going to, how's that going to, like, I literally thought of like, it's like that never stop thinking like, how's this going to affect that going to affect that? And like, how can you make your money work for you? And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Right. But that never went anywhere. And then sold medical supplies in Connecticut, did some odd jobs, traveled to Europe, taught English in Prague. And then my brother's like, hey, do you, I moved back to Philly. And my brother's like, hey, do you want a job? I know this guy at this place called Earl Palmer Brown. Um, advertising. I'm like, yeah, that sounds really cool. Because advertising for me was like the stuff you'd see on TV. And then that's where it all started. I was a junior account executive on Dollar Rent-A-Car. That's where it started. It's a fine place to start. Fine place to start. Yeah. It, was a good, it was actually a good agency. And then I immediately took to... In fact, I remember I, I walk in. This is no bullshit, true story. I walk in, get off the elevator. The receptionist is there. I'm here to see, uh, I think it was this guy named Tom Conti at the time. And I'm just waiting there, and I look on the wall, and there's a framed for a local local florist. And it was three vases, one with one rose, one with six roses, one with 12, 12 roses. And the headline was, how mad is she? And I'm like, I want to do that. Right. That's fun. And literally... The creative department was on the 14th floor, and I just spent all my time down there. And I'm like, how do I get? And I and befriended a lot of those guys. So you end up, you know, you end up running, running Nike in Wyden, Portland. You know, it's a job that no one would begrudge you if you made it your life's work. Can you talk about some of the factors that went into the decision? What was the itch that you were feeling that led you to Anomaly? Um, you know, I felt like, oddly enough, when I talked earlier about being paranoid, I did feel like there was a point of becoming irrelevant if I stayed. I loved living in Portland, Oregon. I loved Wyden and Kennedy. I loved Nike. Um, it was just like the, it, this thing, conversation started happening. And I'm like, I don't know, now's the time to do it. Yeah. As dumb as it might be. And believe me, the, f- the first two years, I was like, did I make the right decision? Because it was tough. I mean, it, it, it was tough. Early anomaly was tough. And um, and moving back and moving to New York. I mean, I lived here before, but it was tough. A, my wife was. We just had a, our first child, and you know, Portland to New York, and then me working twenty-hour days, and the lifestyle change is just completely different. Mm-hmm. But 
um, I wanted to be uncomfortable and I want to see what I had. I want to see if I could do it, you know? Yeah. Fuck it. You talked about Dan not just being a great creative, but a great businessman. Uh, did you anticipate that that would come naturally to you? Did that part of it scare you? No, I liked it. I liked that part quite a bit. Yeah. I like, I, I remember even too, like, I, I, I want to know what's going on. Like, even with clients today, like, what's going on? Like, what are your problems? Like, I know you, you th- there's this problem, but what's, if there's this problem with the brand, there's got to be something that's before that problem. Right. And maybe we should look at that problem. And, and I think um, I want to do more. I'm more interested in solving business problems than I'm solving marketing problems yeah. sometimes. And I want to do more of that. Um, and it's, you know, we're hiring more people that can do that because I think that's our real value. Right. You know, yes, marketing is important, but a lot of times the problem isn't marketing. Because I would think the great challenge for you is kind of just you only have so much time in a day and you only have so many resources and figuring out, you know, how and where to invest those things. And maybe some of the things that you're most interested in doing as a company requires that you guys are investing resources um, where there won't be an immediate return. Yeah. No, it's we've lost a lot of money. We've learned a lot. We've had a lot of failures. Um, And it is not. When people, you know, when people talk about IP, which I don't even know what that means. I know what it means, but I think it's a weird thing. It's like, hey, we're starting a company within Anomaly, or we're starting a brand within Anomaly. It does require, basically what happens is we pick an elite Delta Force squad that we think can, can, can manage their day-to-day and also have a passion for this particular thing right. that we're doing, and we just figure it out. And you, do, you know, as much as there's no time, like, like I'll tell you what I'm amazed at. This is what this is one of the things that's been really bothering me. I walk around Anomaly, and I understand the need to go get inspired on YouTube or go read a blog or do this, that, and the other thing. But when you're at work, work. Like I don't. I think the efficiency model is because I think we're so distracted. Like, like the other day, I, we had a group of people, and I go, imagine if you were paid for how many donuts you made a day. Half of you would make like three. Some of you would make a hundred. Like when you're here, work. Right. Like like when people go like, I don't have enough time. Yeah, you do. Because I walk around and I see it. And I, I'm sure that's at every place. Because I have friends from all of these other agencies that are sending me shit all day long. I'm like, dude, this is just a distraction. Right. You could literally do, you can do your job from 10 to 5 every day and be incredibly prolific and productive and efficient. And be like you like you go like if you go to the gym you go I'm gonna do an hour workout I'm gonna do thirty on the on the the treadmill I'm gonna do thirty on weights and this is exactly what I'm gonna do. You go in you get it done you feel great. There's so no you, reason that you re- that you, re- you reject the idea that procrastination is part of the creative process. I procrastinate like the best of them. <laughs> I got something right now that I'm gonna I know I already know that I'm gonna do it at the last minute. Right. So, no no and and when I said this to everybody I go I'm a culprit of it too. I get distracted so easily. If I if I just go read about if, if the score app comes up on my phone and says something about the Eagles, boom, twenty minutes gone. Yeah, but I'm I'm saying that to them to say it to myself. Like I, if, you know, I think we're I think we're all grappling with that as of our like what's our relationship with things that seemingly have nothing to do with our productivity in any given day. But as you talk about like catch, catching a score, I mean, so much of what we do at our agency has a relationship to the sports world. My ability to be an expert in like the NBA or in the NFL in a way that it doesn't feel like I'm studying. It's just, I'm just following what I love and what comes naturally to me. Like it benefits me. It may benefit me in a meeting in three years. I can't remember the names of like first cousins that I have that I grew up with, but I can remember the name of a guy who's like, 
you know, on fire in double A in Birmingham right now. Right. So you sort of follow, you know, you, you follow, you know, what comes naturally to you. And it sounds like, you know, I mean, you've benefited from your sports fandom at Nike and working yeah. on Nike and working, you know, on, on beats. So like, I think we just grapple with this. Like what is our relationship to procrastination and, and are the things we're procrastinating on actually like the cultural influences that are shaping our taste? I think some of it, yes. Then I think there's the, you know, the cat videos and the, yeah. and the, and you know, our media right now is so packed with politics more than it's ever been. And the other thing about it too, is it's like just everything. I think all that stuff just creates anxiety. So yeah. I think in the workplace, you know, not to be like that guy, but I do remember sitting in an office with another person that, or, you know, a partner that I was working with and just no computer was on music was playing and we had sketchbooks and magazines we were ripping out pages and hanging stuff up on the wall and it just felt i don't know it just felt so good and i missed that i'll tell you i'll <laughs> tell you two two weeks ago uh the internet went down at our agency fantastic and an amazing thing happened which is just like all of a sudden you just started to see louder interactions and just like sort of more collisions of people yeah. in the hallway making small and big talk and people started working in a different way. And I kind of went like, God, I wish we could just shut this fucking thing off. Yeah. Like, you know, one day a week. Uh, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to We talk about that all the time. Yeah. Just shut it down. Yeah. But then it cr that creates anxiety because people are like, wait a minute, what? Yeah. I can't look at my Instagram or my Facebook or I can't do this and can't do that. Like, yeah, you can't. You're just going to have to. You, you, there, I just read something interesting, too, about like being bored is really healthy, you know, right. or what we call bored. Just be bored. Do nothing. Yeah. You know, unthink. Yeah. It's very difficult. I think with screens, you know, I don't, I'm sure you travel a lot. You, you wind up in, you know, in airport bars and, and mm -hmm. you know, delayed flights. Um, and when I when I'm in those situations, I find myself like creating little mental challenges to not pick up my phone and just see if anything happened every 45 seconds. And I'm ashamed to admit that, but like it's a more difficult challenge than than it should be. Yeah. Um, so I'm sure you grapple with that as well. Yeah, constantly. And I'm sure 20 years ago they grappled with something else. So. Well, and you and a guy like you can justify it because you go, you know what? Every 45 seconds, huge things might be happening and people might need my input and someone might be in an edit and they need an answer from me. So you go for the legitimate stuff and then you stay for the bullshit. Well, while I'm here, I might yeah. uh, do a little lap on CNN and Facebook. And, yeah. Um, and I think that's, you know. Yeah, it's like this. Yeah, I mean, I'm just going to check this out. Yeah. Um, so in 2016, you guys helped launch a new cannabis uh, products company. Um, before making a decision like that organizationally, is there any sense of risk aversion related to how clients might respond to that? Do you need permission from any clients to do that? Mm -mm. No. No. I mean, we told, you know, once it kind of really got off the ground, we told a lot of our clients. But it was, everyone was super receptive to it. Yeah. I mean, when you, when you like talk about this plant and you talk about the health benefits and you talk about people that it's helped and the kinds of people that it's helped. And, um, and as anyone picks up, the, no one picks up the newspaper anymore, but anyone reads now, uh, it's a big thing. It's a big industry. And it's, you know, just yesterday, New York state pretty much says it's going to go legal here. Right. Um, and, um, but you know, the backbone of it was health and wellness. It wasn't about, you know, it's not about, what we call getting high. It's about actually dealing with a lot of, you know, mental, physical pain, discomfort, and people who suffer from all different kinds of ailments that can use this, that don't want to, you know, take a pill that was made in the lab that they have no idea what it is that destroys their kidneys and their liver. 
Whereas you can take this thing, which is a plant that grows out of the ground where there's no processing, no carcinogens, nothing bad in it, no molds, no pesticides. And you go like, here's a great alternative yeah. to that. And it's micro, it's dose controlled. So most, most people's negative um, relationship with cannabis is that they smoked something, didn't know what it was and had too much. Right. Or ate something, didn't know how much they were eating and had too much. We've controlled all that. So there's, you know, you, you, you get rid of that fear. Yeah. Because it has a psychoactive effect. We all know that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, clients were cool. Um, and I think once they saw what we did, um, they were like, oh shit, you guys started a brand from ground up and you got, you know, investors and you have a distribution and you have Salesforce and you have a CEO and a CFO and a CMO and right. you have a whole company out in California just running this day to day that you set up, that you built. That's Cool. Yeah. And, they, and it also shows it like, yeah, I mean, I understand. That's why I want to know more about your business. I don't just want to be the creative guy in the room. Tell me about like, I love sitting down and go, and with a CMO and they're, you know, off the record. What's going on? Yeah. You know, tell me where else can I help? Tell me a little bit more about that. I mean, CMOs are under a different kind of pressure than than just five or 10 years ago. And like you said, you know, CMOs, it's a hard job to keep for more than a couple years. And when the new guy comes in, Usually his first big idea is to fire the current agency and hire a new one. What has been um, what has been your journey of of getting comfortable with CMOs and and the relationship building aspect of your job? Does it come naturally to you? I mean, I hope so. I mean, I I I I I tell them, I tell whoever the CMO is, and you know, not just the CMO, but whoever the clients are. If you you know, we got to build trust. You got to have trust in any relationship. Otherwise, there's no relationship. Yeah. And sometimes it's hard to build trust because you're not on the same page. Maybe we, the agency, failed them. Maybe the, the work that we did actually wasn't as good as it could have been. So then they're like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to trust you in the next one. And then that then you have to really. And that happens. You yeah. don't, you know, you don't. No one bats a thousand. Um, but I think if they know that you will run through walls for them that you are proactive, that you were thinking about their business, that they will allow a little room for failure, but there's only a little room for failure because yeah. they have zero room for failure. Yeah. Like on their end, like I tell, uh, you know, craves all the time, like they didn't, they didn't buy our idea. I'm like, do you know what that, do you know what she's dealing with day in and day out? Do you also know that her husband's sick, that her kid has autism, that this president of that company is a, you know, whatever. Right. And like, just think about all that stuff when you're in that room presenting. And all she wants is a solution to her problem that's going to help move product yeah. and, and make her look great and get her, get her a promotion. That's our job is to get CMOs promoted yeah. and get them a better job next time. So th there's, and it's, I mean, all the CMOs I have close relationships with, they have, they are, they are under, they are under a lot of pressure. Yeah. It's Meeting tough. with them from the agency side, it's the crescendo of our day or our week. But for them, it's like this is a very small fraction of their day. You, know? oh, yeah. you hope it's the best part of their day and you can bring some light to the day and what we do should be fun and put smiles on people's faces often mm -hmm. or or make their you know, hair on your arm stand up. But it is a small fraction of what they're worried about on any given day. And, totally. Um, was it a process for you to sort of develop that sense of empathy? Because that changes the way that you're going to interact with a CMO. Did, have you known that for a long time or, or is that just was that part of the learning process? I just think – well, it's funny. One, one of the um, – Partners in Nami, a guy named Richard Mulder, is a Dutch guy who was my client at Nike. And we just, like, we would literally work, meet, 
go home, have dinner. He would have a proper dinner. I'd have the frozen pizza with the sun kiss. Right. And then we'd meet and we'd talk about that brief and we'd actually started concepting together. And he's, you know, he, and he's like a, got a good strategic mind. And that was the first time where a client and we just became really tight. And, um, and I got to understand a little bit more about what was going on on that end, which helped me. And I could take that back to widen and go, hey, this is what's going on over there. And that's kind of when it started. I'm like, that relationship should be strong because you can both benefit from it. Yeah. You know, those longstanding relationships are where some of the best work will happen. When you guys win a huge piece of business with a, you know, a big Fortune 500 company and you're meeting a CEO for the first time and it's hard to get on that level where you're, oh, yeah. you're your best authentic self, do you still grapple with feelings of intimidation or nervousness meeting a super smart CMO for the first time? Uh, yeah, I think you're, you always go into those things too, but then you go, you know, I'm just going to be myself and they're either going to like me or not like me. And, you know, they may have a billion dollars in their bank account, but they're still going to die. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's one, that's one great equalizer. You know, like the, the, a lot of the really wealthy people that I know are kind of not that happy. So I don't know how much I buy into that whole thing. So time's your greatest asset. And, and like any agency, you know, you guys are burning it at both ends. What's, What's your favorite way to in invest an hour on any given day? Um, I mean, I, I still really enjoy, um, I, I did this thing, uh, there's a book called The Artist's Way a long time ago. In fact, it was in Philly when I first, and I do this thing called Morning Pages, where I write three pages longhand. And it's it's kind of, this sort of cheapens it, but you could say it's kind of therapy, but you just, there's no, there's no, point of view on what you're writing, you just have to write three pages longhand. Every morning? Every morning. I don't do it every morning, but if I can, I will. And you come out of that, you get up and you just write. And if, if it, you know, the first page might be like something that's bothering me or this, that, or the other thing. And then by the second page, maybe there's a problem at, at the office or on the client or something that I'm, I'm grappling with. And then I get into that in a really fresh way. By the time you, you you finish your third page, you are fucking ready to take the day on. It is it is unbelievable. And it's from this book, The Artist's Way, and it's one of the first things you do. The other thing you're supposed to do is this thing called The Artist State, which once a week, two hours, by yourself, go do something. By yourself. Yeah. Something that you know. Could be walking in the Central Park. It could be going to a movie. It could be... Um, you know, going to meet, well, that wouldn't be by yourself. It has to be by yourself. Anyway, I could think of other, I can't think of other examples right now because I'm not. How, how soon after you wake up do you begin, does the first, does the pen first touch the page? Try to get it going early. Yeah. You know, I get that, I get a pot of coffee going and put some jazz on and then get right into it. And you can write about work if you want and you can write, write about, about personal shit if you want. Anything yeah. you possibly want. And then you'll end up finding, and it's a great way to like, if you're grappling with something, you can't figure it out. It's it literally just you just you know what you do is you dump all the bad stuff out a lot of the bad ideas and you just write them out you're like yeah that sucks that sucks that sucks and then you just get into stuff and then you're like oh wait a minute what if oh that's kind of interesting I, I I used to I did that and then for a while I would do before I go to bed I do one to twenty and I'd write I couldn't go to sleep before I wrote twenty ideas down and in those twenty there was like probably like seventeen that were just crap but there were three that were like kind of interesting. So then the next morning I would look at those and then I'd start my morning pages and I'd be like, I'm going to incorporate these, this into this. Right. But that to me is a great way to spend the day. And then like, I like a good lunch. Yeah. You know, maybe someone from the office 
And I like sitting in meetings with people and just, I like getting a brief and sitting in a room and just interrogating the fuck out of it. I got to tell you. I like I, all that, sh- you know, I've the asked, manual shit. I've asked this question to many CCOs and I love that your answer, your second answer was lunch. My favorite <laughs> way to spend an hour is just a good lunch. Yeah, go get a good lunch. You know, that's what's great about New York. Just go sit somewhere, get out of the office, don't eat at your desk, have a conversation, you know. That's actually a big deal that you say that because, you know, you could program your day to, you know, be hour after hour from nine in the morning until nine at night. But it's also important for your mental and emotional health to leave the office and get a breath of fresh air and read some sports scores and then get back and kind of, you know, people can feel it when you're, you know, when you're not giving yourself mental breaks throughout the day. Yeah. Be. Oh, you know what? The quote was, um, you only live once, but if you do it right, once is enough. Right. right. So if you look back and go like, because I see people at the office, they're constantly getting their food delivered and the person comes to the receptionist and then they sit at their desk and they open it up and they're like this. And I'm like, that's no way. I mean, come on. Next thing you know, you're 28. Next thing you know, you're 40. Right. And you're like, what happened to those 12 years? I, I want to ask you one more thing about yeah, yeah. the notebooks, which is yeah, yeah. if more often than not, it's a sort of outlet to to release the negativity and the baggage that that may fester throughout the day. So you sort of get it out. Um, do you end up keeping these volumes of notebooks, or is I it have import- okay? Right. I was going to say is stacks. It import- do you ever go back and nope. and look at them mortified? Okay. No, I'm hoping you know one day my kids will go back, or I don't know, maybe I just burn them at some point. That's the question. Do you I ever go want back. to look at them again? Or no, actually- you know what? You just made me think about it. Maybe I will. Yeah. Maybe I'll just pick one up every now and then. But you know, like going back, I've been doing it for 20 years, and then going back, you know, a lot of times I was writing about like relationships. I'm sure there were, but. But you can see when I get excited because then I'll so I, I I write I do script but then if I get excited I go all caps print because right. I want to be able to go back because then sometimes I'll bring it to the office with me and I'll go back and like oh that was a good thought that was a good thought that was a good thought That's you know fascinating. Um, ideas can come from a lot of places you said one of the your favorite ways to spend an hour is just being in the work with teams um, you know sometimes ideas come from teams and sometimes ideas surely come from you. Um, are you mindful not to be unfairly biased towards ideas that that come from you? I'm like a, a I'm like a puppy. <clears throat> if you hold a treat out, and I don't care who holds the treat out, I will run over and hop in your lap and eat that treat. Right. I do give a f- I don't care. I really don't. I, I think I probably used to because it you know the ego thing, or like you know you're like well if I'm not the one in the room having the ideas and uh, why would you keep me hired? Right. And now it's like that's not my job. My job is to you know, a director, a creative director is supposed to direct creativity, whatever yeah. that may be. Well, sometimes your, your job. job, sometimes your job is knowing it when you see it, right. when you see it. Um, can you describe that feeling? You just described it as a puppy. So I'm guessing when you see it, the people in the room can feel your, your excitement. It's like yesterday I was in a little bit of a brainstorm on something and we kind of cracked it a little bit and it just Here's the here's the problem though. A lot of times, like we crack it, and I'm like, "All right, let's go, let's go have a drink." Like, wait, we should really interrogate this more. Like, no, no, we're good, let's go. No, it just it's like I've said it, you've said it, we've all said it. I'm like, that's why I'm in this business. That that feeling of like that wonderful idea before anyone else can fuck with it. But isn't that one of the great gifts you can give to your team is decisiveness? Like. Mike Byrne, who's made some of the things that I love most in this industry, said it's good. So it's good. So now we can stop this part of the process and continue on with like phase two of the operation because you can scrutinize things to death and you can you can kill a lot of time unnecessarily. So like, 
is that kind of the great gift that you can give to your team is just a sense of positivity around an idea? I definitely think that's part of it, but I, I, I the, the downside of something that I'm seeing is that that can happen and then immediately the onset of worry. Well, this client, you know, right. in the past hasn't done this, so maybe this doesn't. And then it's like, it doesn't matter, you guys. Our job, they're not hiring us to think like them. They're hiring us to, to be this this outside force that brings in nuance and perspective yeah. and push them and scare them, but be responsible in doing so. So I think I wish it was easy. It's like, yeah, Mike said, great, we're all good. But I also think I, th- I think that absolutely helps. But I think a lot, you know, a lot of people are so entrenched in the day to day of their client that they have a hard time. And that's a problem. Yeah, that's a big problem. It's one I'm, I deal with. I wonder if you agree with this. Something occurred to me that's true for me a couple of years ago that, you know, at the end of the day, the thing that a lot of the people at the agency are most worried about is just having a really bad meeting. Um, and there's things that are out of your control related to a bad meeting. But one thing that occurred to me is like, well, not all bad meetings are the same. There's the bad meeting where you go in, you show work, and they say, guys, you guys have really like underwhelmed us. You've just played back our own brief to us in the form of an uninspired idea. We were expecting more. Ah, oh, that hurts. Yeah, that hurts. And the other, the other bad meeting is like, you guys have come in with way too ambitious of an idea. We don't have the stomach. You've, you've damn near made us want to puke. This is way further than we're willing to take it. And you sort of pose the question to your people at the agency, like, which bad meeting would you rather have? Lo and behold, that second kind of bad meeting if you aspire to have that, you're going to have more good meetings than bad meetings. Um, do you think of Do you think about it in those terms? No, that's interesting. Though you just, I mean, that I agree. The, the we're on, yeah. I think the set. I, I'm 100 percent in agreement. You want to have the the meeting where they're like, man, that's really ambitious. We can't do it. Which a lot of times means we don't want to. We don't want to. Dude, I'm, you know, a lot of clients are like, dude, I'm working, I'm nine to five. Yeah. Like that that's, sounds hard. I've heard clients say that sounds hard. Yeah. I got to work on the, no, I'm not doing that. Yeah. Um, and it's, it, there's still risk involved, but yeah, like when, when, when they're just sort of disappointed, it's like, it's like your parents, you know, yeah. suddenly they're like, we're just, it's like, we're just, I, mean, I remember, you know, after a wrestling match and I lost my dad's like, yeah, I'm just, I just know you didn't just disappointed. And you're like, fuck, that's the worst. And then also when they're right, and you disappointed them, and they're right. That's right. the that's the whammy. Yeah, you're like you know what? And you're like what? Yeah, you're right. That's a really good point. We did not hit the brief. We did not. Yeah. Then you just got to suck it up. Do you know that right away, or do you have to work through some defensiveness before you can admit that they're right? A little defensiveness, and then admission (laughs) or submission. (laughs) Yeah. What do you see when you see yourself in a young creative? Um, uh, Someone who is uh, a bit self-deprecating, doesn't act like they know everything, but I know that they, I can see in their eyes that they'll, they, they're a hard worker because I'm not, you know, I'm not the talent. I've never been the most talented person, but I know I can work hard, you know, and that, that's what a, that's what always has gotten me through. That that's like what like a warning piece is kind of interesting. That's just another layer of thinking that I can apply to what I'm doing. Because some people can just get it right away. It's not me. Sometimes, but for the most part, I got to find it. You know, and I love people that that you know. It's like there's people that put the pen down too early, and there's people that don't. And there's when I see people that put the pen down too early, I'm like, mm. like you really you think that's the answer? Did you really interrogate it? 
I love when they think it through when they're presenting it to you as well. Yeah. They're like, here's the insight. Here's the thing. You're like, you're getting, it's like they're starting their, because selling is like 99% of what we do. Because you, you could tell me about the greatest idea you ever had, but no one bought it. So what is that? It's just a, it's a fucking piece of paper. It's a, it's, you know, some memory on your computer. But, um, so I love seeing that too, a little bit of the hustle. Because I, I always like to like, show creative when I was young to like show them a video clip or you know show them what the look and feel of like just give a bit of a presentation and show them that I thought it through yeah that I'm not just you know and here's one idea and here's another idea it's like no here's an idea and I'm fucking passionate about it and here's why yeah here you know this is you know that kind of thing it sounds like you take great pride in your abilities as a sales person of ideas some people like to think about themselves as a salesperson some people sort of are turned off by that word? Does that word turn you off? Because you got to swing to hit. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you literally, you got to swing to hit a baseball. You got to sell to get your idea through. Yeah, it is. I think you know. I, I think it's a dirty word because I think people immediately go to insurance salesman, car salesman, yeah. blah 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 blah. But but think about in Hollywood right now. There's probably someone at Pixar pitching an idea, and it's blowing people's minds away yeah when you're preparing to enter a room throughout your career to sell an idea especially one that you're excited about um what's going through your head are you are you um trying to calm yourself down or psych yourself up are you relatively scripted um are you sort of trusting in your instincts that you know just stay with what's in the pdf and like trust that the idea will shine kind of what's your general approach to salesmanship well you know there's always a little nervousness um but you know, I w- I'd be lying to you if I said, if I really believe in it, I'm I'm very confident, even if they don't, even if it doesn't get sold. But if I'm halfway there, or I'm representing something I'm not a hundred percent, then it's a little bit like anybody. It's just it's hard to s- sell something you don't believe in. But when you really feel it in your bones, then, and it's not that scripted. Like I'll make some mental notes, and and you know it also helps before you go to the client, go around. The office and pitch it to people and then learn what you're saying that's not sticking and then I do think a little rehearsal that way yeah is good I find it, myself when I get excited about an idea I just my body lifts me out of my chair before I've had time to think about it and I just start circling the agency and just telling like that's great you know and you're right I, I guess subconsciously that's what's happening which is like start thinking about how you would how you would get someone excited about this idea and then you sort of see different reactions you see which part of your description gets people out of their chairs and you're like, okay, I'm going to go ahead and keep that one. Yeah. Keep that in your back pocket. Yeah. That's going to be part of the, the real, yeah. the real, the, you know, these are all dry runs for the real presentation. But, yeah. Um, let's talk about craft. I think throughout your career, you know, throughout your time at Wyden and now at, at Anomaly, um, there are very few agencies with the exception of Wyden and Anomaly where I don't, f- you can tell me if this is a false perception, but I don't feel like there's a lot of happy accidents happening on set. I feel like those are sort of, those are two of the rare islands of creativity where the final product isn't all that different than what was originally in a Word document. Um, and there's a real art, especially in filmmaking, to like being able to have a vision for something early on and stay with that vision and, um, uh, and, and just being true to it throughout a process that will you know, introduce a lot of different variables. First of all, is that true? Um, do, you, do you sort of, throughout your career, has the relationship between what's been in the word document and the final product been pretty uh been been pretty in sync yeah i think for the most i think for the most part 
I, I've always enjoyed um, thinking about, especially f- with film, thinking about as I'm, you know, writing a script, I'll write really long notes about w- what I think the camera should be doing. I just always have found that interesting. Yeah. Um, and I remember how Curtis, my old partner, Wyden, he, he, he said to me once, uh, you know, it's not really about the idea. It's really about the execution. And if you think about it, Hollywood every year probably produces 100 romance comedies and only two are worth a shit. Because right. the, the narrative was strong, beginning, middle, end, the way it was filmed, the talent, the, all, the, all the craft part was what lifted it up. And I think, you know, people, I, 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 years ago I had a team no longer there that would write scripts and just write the VO and I go, well, what am I seeing? Like, really? Right. You don't, you don't write what you're seeing? And I, because everyone has different script formats too. Yeah. I notice. I just write it like it's a fucking essay. It's okay. Like if a it's, it's okay if it's a 30 second spot that, that yeah. spreads out over four pages for you. Yeah. yeah. And then when I'm explaining it to people, I, I either want to have some visual thing that has inspired it because we're just constantly stealing. Yeah. Right. Or, and then, and then, then there's that, then there's the relationship with the director. And, you, you know, you have good ones and you have bad ones. I tend to go keep working with the people that let me be connected with them and collaborate with them, not the people that are like, you can go over there. I was like, that's not how it works. It's like this thing, this is like, I've known, I've, I've seen this in my head since its inception. Right. Or someone else wrote it and I can see it in my head since its inception. And, you know, we have to, and it's just, again, it's like, don't put the pen down too early. Like, like craft is interrogating everything. And... You know, I've, I've been, I don't go on sets that much anymore, but the last one I was on, the creative teams weren't even looking at the fucking tap. They were looking on their computers. You got to be locked in on that and you got to be overthinking it. And I remember shooting with Frank Budgen and I was, we were shooting um, up in Toronto. God rest his soul. Like I was a great guy, but he was, he had a little, little Kodak 35 camera and he was framing up the shot. He'd take a still. And then he had a clipboard and he just drew squares and he had his one eye closed. That's why I'm doing it. And he was reframing the shot like 16 times before we, went, we shot anything, which is why he needed six days to shoot where another director would take two. Mm-hmm. Just like I, I've heard, well, I heard that Stanley Kubrick used to be, you know, maybe afraid to shoot film, which is why he would like show up at a set like eyes wide shut and say, that's not a New York City apartment. That hallway's too big. And then another six weeks to rebuild the set. But there was theory there that he was just afraid to shoot film. He was afraid to just commit. But I just, I love that. And you got to interrogate it, think it through, question everything. Um, and, and really see it in your head. And I think a lot of people, they write the script and they're, and they're you know, they're like, God, we just, whew, that was a good pre-pro. Now we can relax. Now yeah. we can fly to wherever and just eat M&Ms and, you know, go have nice dinners. It's like, well, no, you're there to you're there to craft. Man. It's interesting to hear you say that. I mean, I think sometimes during the heyday of Crispin, we would um, uh, we would hire incredible directors. We hired the Coen Brothers for a thing, or Spike Lee, and then we'd stand over these guys' shoulders and tell them exactly what we wanted. And it's like, <clears throat> if you're going to hire these guys, you got to let them do what they're good at. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but it's a mix because you also, like you said, you don't want to be sitting in Video Village eating M and M's. Like you need to be in the mix and you only get one shot at this and you're going to be sitting in that edit wishing that you brought up the thing that was, oh God, that was burning worst. in your soul. So like what's your approach to that is just trying to develop the 
the trust with the director early on so that you can check in with him throughout the day without, you know, eating his lunch? I think where where it didn't happen, I mean, look, if you have a great script, the collaboration's going to, and they they really want it and they really hustle for it, yeah. then you're gonna, it, it helps. But I think now, too, is like you have to write a letter or write an email or have a just a one-on-one call and go, hey, how do you work? I've heard this. I've asked a few people that right. you alienate the agency. And that's fine. I just want to know why. And wh- at what point do I get thrown away? Yeah. Because if I can get to this point, I'm, I'm cool with you running the show, especially if it's someone that's really good. But right. like some new director that's got an ego, it's like, no, thank you. Right. Um, but yeah, you, you got to let the, you know, Cohen, you got to let them do their thing. Because otherwise they're, they're like, fuck you guys. Yeah. You know? Um, no, that's a huge part of it. Uh, how do you know when something is done? Are you an incessant tinkerer? No, I mean, it's funny what you, you said is like you're in the edit and you're like, I should have, I wanted to ask him to do that thing. I wanted that one shot and I was I was being too nice. Um, That's probably, it's it's almost more like regret because, you know, you could be obsessed to, to a point, but look, I mean, you know how deadlines have changed. Like you sell it on Monday, it's got to be out there on Friday. Yeah. So there's not a, it's like, now it's like the speed of craft. Like you can't go any, when people go like, well, we don't have enough time. I go, dude, we don't have enough time. We don't have enough money. We don't have, I'm like, that's the way of the world, man. Just yeah. adapt. My daughter's shooting, you know, killer videos on her iPhone at school and editing, and you know, she's doing that. What are you bitching about? This is the great battle. I'm sure. Speed of craft. Yeah. I'm sure after, a, game. after a couple of bourbons, you, you, you miss the old days of like, you know, as a team getting flown out to stay at the Viceroy for 40 days to, you know, shoot one 60 second commercial and yeah. editing it for three weeks. And, oh. But I think that I think what you're saying is so true. And the hard part about that is like it's the first it's the first easy excuse like, well, this thing didn't come out as we expected and it's mediocre. But like, you know, the budget was bullshit and the timeline was bullshit. And it's like, well, what will separate us as an agency from others is, yes, the budget was bullshit. And yes, the timeline was bu- bullshit. And yes, this still needs to be great. And it's not fair, but it is the world we live in. Yeah. I mean, the, the the black and white of it is, you know, you either one or you're lost. It's either good or it's not good. And you know, it's like it's a very uncompromising, uncomfortable way. But that's the that's the real facts. There's yeah. going to be people that have the same time that you do and crush it, and there's people that don't, and they'll find a million excuses. We we were actually talking about this the other day, of doing a wall at anomaly of all the excuses excuses that we make. Not like everybody, strategists, count people, yeah, creatives. Just every time you have an excuse, just write it on the wall. So you can walk by and go, yeah, everybody at every agency has says the same shit. But either one or you didn't, it's either good or it's not good. It's like black and white. Man, you that's going to hit, that's gonna hit close to home for people. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I mean, we all do. I do it, you know. Yeah. I, I, I complain about stuff. You have too much uh, on any given day to be the creative director on any one individual account. But you know, for some of your biggest accounts, especially people want to work with you and you have a reputation that precedes you. Do you ever find yourself sort of getting roped into the day-to-day creative director role? And how do you handle that? Sometimes like, you know, if people are busy or, you know, like I'll dive bomb in and help out on something. I, I like it too. I also like that. I still have to prove my worth. Like, uh, going back to the rowing thing when I was the, the coxswain, those guys were doing sick workouts. And I was like, I'm doing them with you. I gotta earn. I gotta earn my keep, you know. Yeah. And I still feel like, even if there's a some crappy brief in the agency, sometimes I'll just do it just to go see. Doesn't yeah. you know? You got to keep the tools sharp, you know. Yeah. 
yeah, the best generals can also be the best soldiers. I think the other thing is like, well, if Mike can write it, and if Mike can get in and like write some slides or figure out how to organize this idea, then like nothing is beneath anybody. Yeah, I mean um, that's the meritocracy of anomaly. It's like we don't. I'm not in some office with people lined up outside of it. I'm right out there in the pit. You right. know, that's the only way I. You know, that's what. That's probably where I'm more a player coach than I'm a. Going back to your question about are you a GM or a coach, I'm more of a player coach. Yeah. Um, at Anomaly, what's the relationship between creative and planning, and is it okay for strategy to come after an idea? Yeah, we we've really. I mean. <clears throat> If there was any brainwashing I had coming out of Wyden where it was just like everything's got to be out of the creative department, that is completely gone. Like we have a, it's a, it's a very healthy atmosphere of wonderful people, all creative. Everyone has their discipline at the yeah. end of the day. Gun to your head, you got to actually do this. But when we're getting together and all that, it's it's a very accommodating, uh, open environment yeah. for people. Sometimes uh, failure sets us up for later success. Do you have a favorite failure in your career? Uh, I, I, it's probably just more of not thinking things through enough. You know, you talked about that one meeting. There's, there's there's two kinds of meetings. You have enough of those first meetings, you get a little bit harder on yourself about interrogating the ideas and all that stuff. So I think it's a cumulative bad meetings yeah, and the residue of that. And then really kind of how do I address that and how do I get better at, at, you know, thinking about that meeting before I'm in that meeting, like getting up and going like, and looking at their faces, their nonplussed faces. Right. Right. <laughs> like someone's been on their phone. You're like, Oh fuck, I lost the room. Right. Yeah. And you sort of know how to anticipate not feeling that dreaded feeling now because you've, you've been in that room a thousand times. So the one the one thing I will say is we, we pitched Levi's against <laughs> Wyden way back in like 2008. They ended up winning. And I thought we won the thing. I mean, we I, but we did a book of it was for 501. We did a book of 501 ideas that we printed. Wow. that was it, and it was I still have the book and I still look in the book because there's so many great ideas in there. But what we did is they, we overwhelmed them. So yeah. out of that, since our new business record out of that has been so much better because we don't, now it's like, if that if I got the whole agency to work on that pitch, now I get like six people. Yeah. Like we're just smaller and tighter and we're efficient. Yeah. And get the answer and execute and prep, you know? I think that's been a shift in the industry too. I mean, during my Crispin days, we would come in with hundreds of ideas and with the supposition, like, tell us an idea you like, tell us a headline you like, tell us a word you like, and we can take any of that and turn it into something. Yeah, I heard, something I used to hear like. stories about, yeah. you had like 17 folders. They're yeah. Like 70, pick, pick up one folder. Yeah, and like, yeah, which one, yeah, there's not a first idea, and it's like, just you pick, and all these, you know, all this like psychological warfare that, you know, Alex was really great at. But I think today, I think clients want your perspective as a marketing professional. Like, well, if you're bringing 20 ideas, then it means that, you know, don't bring in 20 ideas and tell me that, like, you love all of them the same. But what do you do? And when do you, you know what idea? Like, what's the best idea for us? Why are we making that? Isn't that, you know? Yeah. At, but, the end hey, of the, at the end of that presentation. It worked presentation, for Crispin because yeah. you guys were, that, those heydays were unbelievable. Well, at the end of a presentation, whether you've shown 20 or you've shown three, they're going to ask you, you know, which one do you love the most? Do you have a, do you have a sort of standard response to that? 
Well, if there's one, well, you know, that's always tough too. If, if there's like two or three things floating around and I know the team in the room really loves this one, that's when it's tough. And if I don't, yeah. so that's when I'm like, you know, we, we've just been kind of going at this really hard. I haven't really had time to sit back. <laughs> I know. I've or never, I've never answered that hard. question. I'm asking you because I don't know how I to answer that I got asked it last question. week and I was honest. Yeah. And I said this one and this is why. Yeah. And I don't know if that made any difference. There was two good things on the table, so we'll see. But yeah, It's a loaded question. The question is like, I know which one I like. Can you select the one that I like in my head? <laughs> totally. Can you do that work? <laughs> but if you say, I like the one you like, you come off like a chicken shit. Yeah. You know, and like you don't have a, a point of view. Um, in the last five years, what have you gotten better at saying no to? Uh, bad briefs. Like, that's not, what is that? That's not a brief. Yeah. Because um, normally I'd be like, yeah, it doesn't matter what's in the brief. We'll just crack it and then come back. But now it's like, no, let's get that brief really tight and, and let's make it. Um, if I'm just picking it up, I'm inspired to tackle the problem. Right. And it's not just like this list of words and who are we talking to? And blah, 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 blah. Like, let's. So we've changed kind of how we do that. Yeah. So you read it and it's like you're like, fuck, yeah, man, I want to run through walls in this goddamn thing. Yeah. So can a bad brief go too far in the other direction where it's like it's trying to solve the problem in a way that infringes on your ability to sort of approach it open mindedly? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, that was part of the problem. I was like, you're you're asking for nine things here. Like you you haven't. It, it brings it this whole because part of I mean, part of a brief, there's strategy baked in a brief. What we do as creatives is strategy. Like I don't, th yeah. you don't think of anything without coming up with an insight and an insight is a truth. And that's usually where a strategy, you know, like, so it's a weird, it, it's a, it, it's a weird thing. So that's where now like we'll get a, the client brief and then we'll all sit together and interrogate that. And then, you know, with that client, like, Hey, can we go and just mess with this and come back with you and rearticulate it? And most of the times they're like, hell yeah, let's do that. As long as so we still know the, the North star. Yeah. So I think that process has made things much better. Yeah. 14 years into being CCO at Anomaly, is there anything about managing creativity that you haven't cracked or gotten right to the extent that you that you wish? Um, I don't know. You know, it's funny because, well, because I'm going around to other offices and all that stuff, I don't really, you know, I, ne I need to spend more time with the inspiration piece with getting like spending time with people yeah. and, and motivating them and, you know, sharing things with them and inspiring them. You know, like I purposely don't, I don't judge award shows in it. Like I don't do any of that industry stuff. Yeah. And there's a downside to that cause you don't necessarily get to see all the talent, but I also find that to be, and I'm part of this industry, but I'm, I also like to consider myself not part of the industry. And I just, you know, it's just about spending more time with people. That's probably, that's got to be the biggest contradiction you have to reconcile. You're responsible for growing the company, mm -hmm. you know, more people, more offices, more clients. But the more you do that, the less you're you're yeah. able to apply the personal touch. I mean, I, I still like the art schoolness of what we do. And I like, I miss the, it's 10 o'clock and there's five of us left in the office, right. you know, playing chair games. But coming up with ideas, like I miss the camaraderie a little bit, and I and that's something I think that is important. So I end every one of these conversations with the same two questions. The first is, in a presentation of your work to a client at any point in your career, what is the most 
horrifying response you've ever gotten to an idea that you've presented? Uh, people don't drink iced tea in the winter. <laughs> I can't. I That's pretty good. Yeah, I, I had a, just a re, this woman who just was just just really just didn't. I said something. I did something. She was having a bad day. I don't know. And she just was really just mean, like the meanest I've ever. And I'm like, dude, we're talking about iced tea. Right. Why are you so angry? <laughs> uh, Maybe she's right. Do people drink iced tea in the winter? Probably not. Yeah. But that wasn't the point I was making. <laughs> uh, I don't even. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. It was, it was basically about like you got to own the porch. Right. You know, and that's visually where we're going to be. We're going to be on porches and and I showed all these pictures of all these great porches and we're going to build porches and, you know, and it's the ceiling fans and the, the summer breeze. And, and she's like, what, what happens, what happens in the winter on the porch? And I'm like, you don't, you're not on the porch in the winter. And <laughs> well, she just took this whole thing. Like, well, the porch has to be 365 days a year. And I'm like, yeah, well, you can be inside pretending you're on the, it right. just, it, it just, you're, was, ha- you're happy to have the debate, but when the subtext is Mike, you idiot. Yeah, it was basically like, you're an idiot. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Uh, and maybe related, maybe unrelated. She's probably right. Maybe related, maybe unrelated. The final question is called the one that got away at any point in your career. What is that idea that you were never able to sell for whatever reason, but like you just, you know, it was a damn good idea and it just, it stays seared in your soul all this time later. So, um, there was an idea that we had called drink the rink where, um, had at the time the Vancouver Canucks won the Stanley cup. We were going to take piece of the ice from game seven and put that into the, uh, uh, you know, obviously distill it and put that actual liquid into this actual beverage. Oh yeah. And, um, I think as a fan, you know, I'm a Philadelphia Flyers fan and the Flyers won the Stanley cup. And somebody said, we're going to have this, uh, this drink with some of that Stanley Cup ice in it, my father and my brother and I would be lined up around the block buying cases of this shit. And I just always, and you know, it was, it was like, well, people are going to have this adverse. I'm like, no, they won't. I mean, everything's distilled. Every water, you know, any bottled water goes through a purification process. A lot of bottled water companies use actually tap water that they purify. So there's no, and it's a limited edition thing. And it just, it's just something I always thought would be that's really it good. It was weird enough and fun enough and and maybe even gross enough. But uh, to the people like me, it would have been, that's cool. Because I, I I just like when brands do stuff. It's that brand behavior. They do stuff, you're like, you know what? That's fucking cool they did that. Uh, hey, man, I have admired your career for a long time. And the company that you built at Anomaly um, is a huge source of inspiration for the rest of our industry. So I appreciate you sitting down and talking. Thank you. To me. I really enjoyed this. Yeah, thanks for having me. Cool. Thanks, man. All right, you feeling the burn? I'm feeling the burn. That's a really good dude. Thank you to Mike Byrne. Thank you to our producer, Jeff Fiorello at JSM Music. Thank you to The One Club. And if you're digging the pod, please share it with a friend or a colleague. And we'll talk again soon. Peace. Peace.